there we go. The choice of our guest presenter, Rutka Hoekstra, hails from the Netherlands. He is the author of a book that we're going to be talking about called Replacing GDP by 2030. We're going to be looking at the concept of the GDP as we move forward. And it was a suggestion that came from you, one of you, one of our listeners. And my apology is I have... Um, forgotten your name and we can't find the particular message that you sent just saying can we look more broadly at questions around sustainability and the economy and we thought well this would be a great time to do it Rutger hail bedankt thank you that you have joined us here on the show we appreciate it enormously yeah g- uh, greetings from Leiden Dorp <laughs> <laughs> very very pleased to be with you Rutger you we always like to ask our guest presenter the choice of songs that they make. And your first choice, Tracy Chapman, uh, seems to ring very true uh, with regards to the theme that we have had throughout the show. And a lot of the conversations we've had around the show were about, um, I suppose one could call it citizen activism and t- turning the tables by actioning and being active. So why that choice song, and does it link to the theme we've been talking about? Yeah, I think it does. I think there is a very broad feeling that we are living in a time um, where things are going to change. Um, And it's perhaps also quite a a bit of a confusing time with a pandemic, climate crises, all types of crises. but to be quite frank, I really agonized over the, the song uh, choice. This is really quite, quite a difficult choice. I guess it resonates on the message, but it also resonated because it was the um, uh, the album that my wife and I, when we first started dating, really <laughs> played a lot. So it has personal meaning as well as having a... Uh, a message for today. You know, it's so funny. We, we, I love that when someone goes, okay, it was, well, it's, it's really important because it has this message. But you know what? Actually, it's the song that I danced to with my partner at our wedding or whatever <laughs> that case may be. It has nothing to do with the message. Yeah, who cares about the message? It's no, just something well, we danced to and it yeah. makes us happy. Rutger, <laughs> uh, you are an academic at the United Nations University and I certainly had not heard of the United Nations University until I started reading up more. Tell us about that. Yeah, actually, um, I, I'm uh, to be quite frank, I'm very um, have many different roles. Um, so um, actually, throughout my career, I've never really felt at home uh, anywhere um, uh, in particular. So I've been at statistical offices. I've been a consultant at KPMG. I've worked at universities, and I'm kind of somebody that um, lives in the middle of all these uh, activities. Um, so uh, although I, I, I work for the World Bank, I work for various um, UN organizations, including the United Nations University, but also the UN Statistical Division. Uh, I have a day at Leiden University. So it's um, I must say that I actually work for... Uh, many different uh, organizations at the moment. Um, And uh, yeah, it it also keeps you really active uh, when you're talking to a government, for example. It makes it very different to when you're talking to a a corporate, um, um, for example. The the, the questions that you get are really, really uh, different. Wildly different, I'm sure. 
And I'm sure they're going yes. to be wildly different here as well. Rutger, let's um, start at the beginning. Um, we, we, I'd like to kind of go back. Let's look at what the GDP is. And then maybe we can just go back in time to some of the concepts that were raised. I mean, I'm thinking of Joseph Stiglitz and the like, who started to raise questions around how we measure a country's health and even wealth. So, and then from there, let's uh, go forward into some of the fascinating research that you've been doing that you have told me about in the past. Let's start, first of all, for those of our listeners who don't understand GDP, we what do we mean by GDP and why is it important to me and to Ronald and to Mdu and to Phineas who are in the studio? Well, basically GDP simply adds up all the goods and services that are produced in the economy. So whenever you go to the supermarket um, or you buy uh, anything uh, online, um, basically, those are all uh, calculated in the GDP. And in addition to that, we also um, add the government services, so education, health, uh, roads, all the uh, civil servants, all of those um, economic activities are also included in the GDP. So it's a very broad measure of the economic activity um, in, in a country. And that's a really important indicator, of course, because um, it does tell you a lot about, for example, the amount of taxes that an economy uh, might be able to sustain. Um, In fact, the earliest measures of GDP, uh, which are over 400 years old, those were actually usually calculated to measure whether a, a country like England could go to war. Um, you know, it, it, there were obviously a lot of wars w- with France and also some with the Netherlands. And to actually calculate whether England could afford to go to war to, with these countries, England actually uh, did the first kind of GDP measures in, in those time periods. So it's a very important measure uh, in terms of taxes and, and uh, uh, those kind of activities. You say that it is a broad measure, but it, it, it would appear from the research that you're doing and some of the, the work that you're doing that you feel it's not broad enough. No, uh, and, and this is an insight actually that even the inventor of GDP had um, back in 1943 or, or 34. Uh, Simon Kuznets himself said when he was actually creating the first GDP measure for the United States, he actually said, it's a, it's a, not a measure of social welfare. Um, it's a measure of economic activity, but it's not a measure of social welfare. And so actually economists have been uh, trying to create uh, alternatives. Uh, even back in 1972, uh, there were economists saying, uh, well, you know, it doesn't include leisure time, for example, which is, um, contributes, of course, a lot to our uh, well-being. Uh, it doesn't include all the uh, work that people do in households. So, for example, feminist economists uh, talked about, you know, all the household work that was being done uh, mostly by women, um, of course, back then, was not actually measured in GDP. Uh, and also the environmental damages, um, uh, they argued, should be included, because if you are producing things, uh, you're creating value. But if you're actually... Um, damaging the environment in the process, 
then that should be subtracted from the uh, national income uh, estimates. So, Rutger, some people might argue that economic activity uh, demonstrates the health of a country and that if a, if a country's GDP or, or gross domestic product per uh, individual is high, then surely we are okay. But you're suggesting that social welfare is not a versus, but is another arm to how we look at health. Yes, and it does also make a difference uh, where in the economic development a country or a person is. Um, so, for example, uh, half I think still half the world population still lives uh, on less uh, than five uh, euros a day. I think yeah. that's a World Bank statistic still. Which is like 70 so rand it's, it's a day. Fairly, it's fairly obvious that for the very poorest people or the very poorest countries, GDP is actually uh, a pretty good measure. You know, if you could increase that, those five euros to 10 euros, um, that would actually make a huge difference on the quality of life of, of the people that have those income levels. Um, and so actually, the uh, it, it's quite a subtle distinction when GDP is a good measure of well-being uh, and when it's not. Um, and But basically, beyond a certain threshold, um, and especially, you know, the developed world has um, uh, has those thresholds, and a lot of people live above that. There, the relationship between life satisfaction and income becomes much weaker because we've fulfilled all the basic needs, we have uh, various luxuries, and then we lo- start looking towards things like uh, well-being. Mm. We're making choices rather on on the well-being, uh, on, on good life, so to speak, rather than. Um, um, rather than income. We're talking to Rutger Hoekstra, economist uh, in the Netherlands. He's written a book called Replacing GDP by 2030 and trying to understand how countries measure health, wealth and security, historically done through the GDP. Obviously, if you've got questions, we've got one for you here, Rutger. Uh, Please feel free to connect with us and you can do so on SMS 41391, WhatsApp 0614104107, on Twitter at SAFM Radio, hashtag SAFMJSB or at Mish Constant or 011-714-2006. Good morning, Shell and your guest presenter. I just want to ask your guest presenter, what does he think about the impact of an introduction of a universal basic income grant how would that affect the way we look at the gross domestic product thank you universal basic income a slight deviation but what's your take on that Rutger? yeah the, the, this is a discussion that comes up a lot it, it's uh, tangential i think to actually measuring overall well-being of uh, a society I, I do think uh, it's mentioned a lot in the context of automation um, and people actually not being able to to get uh, jobs. Um, I look at it this in two ways. Uh, I think in a way that um, a UBI is actually providing an income, so that's uh, um, you know, and it's providing security. So those are are positive well-being uh, impacts. Um, and at the same time, um, I think we should also look at the other psychological aspects of having a job. Um, from the happiness uh, research, it, it, it 
you know, it's fairly clear that people also need a purpose in life, need um, want to have a certain certain goals, and sometimes that actually uh, jobs do actually fulfill those roles really well. So I do also think we need to think about. Um, you know the the fact that there should be some income security, mm. uh, but at the same time also acknowledge that jobs are actually very important aspects sometimes of people's lives and of people's well-being. Yes. So Rutka, let's go back a decade or so to uh, could be a bit more. I forget um, when the economist, uh, the Nobel uh, economist Joseph Stiglitz. Uh, came up with a report. I think it was for the French, if I'm not mistaken. Um, which was quite astounding at the time, and people were like, "Huh?" It was, it was, and it was very much in line with what you're talking about now. T- take us back to that moment. Yeah, I was actually at the Sorbonne when uh, when they presented it, and it was really awe-inspiring. <laughs> <laughs> it was a, very, it was very, you know, it was a fabulous location, and then to have, you know, a, a couple of Nobel Prize winners. Uh, dealing with a topic like this, it was actually really fabulous. And I think it had a really important um, a role, the report, in actually identifying which are the three crucial d- dimensions that we should actually be measuring. Yeah. Um, so the first is this well-being. So how are people doing? How are their daily lives? What's the quality of their lives? So that's well-being. The second domain is sustainability. You know, how will we do in the future? How will our grandchildren uh, fare? And the third dimension, I think, also really important is equity. You know, what are the differences in inequality um, um, between countries, but also within countries? So I think the Stickers report um, was really a watershed moment where such a, a, an important panel uh, weighed in on this topic and really showed us... Um, you know, what direction we needed to take. It, it might have shown us what direction we need to take, but uh, the one thing that appears clear is that there are all sorts of measurements that have now come out, I mean, from the happiness index to, to other things. And one does, I suppose, then ask, well, what is the way post-GDP? Is there, is there such a thing as a post-GDP world? I think there is, but I think we need a bit of an evaluation of our own community. So I regard myself as part of the Beyond GDP community. Yeah. And we do also need to be really realistic that we've been in this fight for 50 years. So the um, work that I mentioned from 1972 is basically the first efforts to go beyond GDP. Yeah. Uh, and so we have been at this for 50 years. And we have been very unsuccessful. And I think that really is the crucial question. Um, even the Stiglitz report, although I think it's a really important report, um, has not really, in those 11 years since it's been published, really re- uh, re- uh, led through a breakthrough. Um, and I, I think we should actually learn from economists because they actually created a a huge logistical um, system, Mm. which I call the Beyond GDP or the GDP multinational, where they are actually creating these statistics and these models in over 200 countries uh, every quarter. Um, So every quarter, um, 
most countries will publish their GDP figures in exactly the same way all over the world. And that's a huge Problem. achievement um, oh. that economists have, have done. And all the our community, if I can speak of our community, we actually keep inventing new indicators and, yeah. and confusing the whole world with uh, human development index, sustainable development goals, uh, happy planet indexes, and I can go on and on and on. Yeah. And I think we need to be really honest with ourselves and say, you know, this is not working. We're just inundating the world with different indices and we need some clarity. Mm. And the GDP provides clarity, although it may not be completely uh, the right one. We've got a message from Chapa saying, uh, Chapa is our citizen activist for today, for sure, Chapa. Chapa in Cape Town saying, in South Africa, the increase in the national gross domestic product, GDP does not, and that's highlighted, translate to better lives or better quality of life for the vast majority of destitute and poor in this country. And we've certainly seen that the numbers just continue to rise. And Chapa says this is a given fact, given thanks to the government's policies, which are based upon inequality. So, Rutger, what uh, we would love to talk to you about, and first we do have to go to our sporting uh, news, but when we come back, I'd I would love you to tell our listeners about your research that you've been doing in uh, the New York Times because it just is completely fascinating and talks to really how people like myself who are not economists or people who just listen to it and try and read the newspaper and try and get an understanding of what the hell is going on. And you'll tell us about that research in a moment. But sports first, and then to your second Big Fat Juicy. 9.32, you are with SAFM. Our guest presenter is Rutke Hoekstra in the Netherlands, author of the book Replacing GDP by 2030, which was published by Cambridge University Press. He's also the founder of Metrics for the Future, uh, a measurement company and a consultancy company that works with um, international organizations, governments, and companies as they look at going beyond GDP and simply beyond profit. Uh, interesting message from someone saying, double message, I'm going to have to. Um, okay, if GDP represents the operating budget, we need to measure also the total value of our capital assets, infrastructure, education, environment, etc., on the balance sheet, as is done for companies. Countries need to be measured for their overall state, not only their annual contribution. Uh, I would agree with that. That's from Max. Rutger, you told me about this research that you were doing, which I thought was pretty freaking quirky, but also quite valuable for <laughs> people like myself who, you know, are, I mean, I'm not an economist. I don't really understand this stuff. But the way you were, you were looking at it in relation to the media is fascinating. Tell us about that. Yeah, I've spent all, well, a lot of my career just on the technicalities of measurement and those kind of things. But I did also wonder what impact does it have on, on society? Um, and I came across a, a uh, an electronic archive of the New York Times that is really wonderful in terms of the research that you can do. And so I just started uh, looking up words like economy, for example. How many articles, what percentage of articles have the word economy in them? And there is a really striking development if you look at about a century of New York Times, because we have the Times since 1923 electronically. If you look at the development of the word economy, it was actually only mentioned in about 3% of the articles back in 19, uh, uh, 1930. 
uh, when uh, the Great Depression was at its uh, at its worst. So at the peak of the Great Depression, only 3% of articles had the word economy in it. And currently, uh, during the um, COVID pandemic, actually around a sixth of all articles in the New York Times have the word economy in them. So that's a five-fold increase. Yeah. And so I actually think we're actually talking more about the economy uh, than we were a um, hundred years ago. And these kind of archives really tell us that the conversation is, is shifting uh, gradually towards the economy rather than us focusing on the other domains of life, um, which are so important. So you talk about this shift. And when we talk about the economy, do, are, are we suggesting that we understand what that word even means? I mean, it's being used in the media. It's being used particular in the research that you're doing. Do we understand that? I actually think very few people really would be able to answer just a simple pop quiz about exactly <laughs> what is in the GDP. <laughs> yeah, it's actually the handbook is actually 700 pages long, and and I would really like to know a statistic about how many people have actually ever read that entire accounting handbook in the media um, as well. But huh. I think, we, but uh, yeah, but I think what has happened is that we have been primed uh, to a large extent to, to interpret the figure. Uh, and we simply just think that when it grows, it's good. Um, and when it's, uh, we're in recession, then that's a, a bad thing. And you can even see that uh, when I was researching these archives, you can actually see it by the adjectives which are used for economic growth or the economy. Um, you know, when it's, uh, when it's a positive GDP, then it will be described as healthy, um, which is um, healthy or robust or strong, uh, which are obviously adjectives which tell you uh, a lot about which direction you should be wanting it to go. Mm. And when uh, GDP figures are bad, it will be weak, feeble, uh, lethargic, you know, any type of adjectives which are um, sometimes actually related to health. It's really interesting that a lot of those adjectives are related to health. Um, and it, it basically tells you the journalist is kind of priming you at that stage huh. to really know that up is good, uh, bigger GDP is better, and lower GDP is worse. So I, I do think in a certain way we are inundated with this message um, subliminally uh, every day. So... Is it correct for a for a journalist to to put those kinds of adjectives next to the GDP? Because as you say, that is simply priming me to read it as a positive or a negative. And in fact, there may be so many other um, things that we could look at, as was mentioned by one of our listeners, as Max was saying, um, that we could look at on the balance sheet of the country. Yeah. No, no, exactly. I mean, if the economy, um, so if the economy was growing uh, and at the same time well-being was growing, um, we were becoming more sustainable and the inequalities were diminishing, then at that stage, if you actually had the measures of all those three other things, uh, then you could say that the economy or your society was healthy. I would say, but if you're just focusing on the number GDP, 
without that context, I don't think you can actually say that it's healthy because inequalities might be increasing. um, And then you're basically saying that when GDP increases, um, that's healthy. But if at the same time inequalities are increasing, um, you are actually um, giving the illusion that all aspects uh, which are important are actually also improving. Right. And and to get back to the to the assets, that's a really important point. Uh, GDP is just a measure of what happens during one year, but it's also really important what what assets we have in terms of roads, bridges, as the listener was saying, but also the human capital um, uh, that people have uh, and the natural uh, resources uh, of soci- of uh, society. Um, and, and that kind of work, I've also contributed to a World Bank report called The Changing Wealth of Nations, yeah. which was published a couple of weeks ago and which has fabulous data sets for these kind of, uh, of assets. So is that uh, publicly available? Absolutely, yes. It was just published three weeks ago. Yeah. So anybody that's interested in these kind of asset measurements, I would really uh, advise them to go to the um, to the World Bank website. Wow, that sounds like it's a, going to be a fascinating read. So, Rutger, um, we are going to go into your set your guest uh, after your guest's first choice song. I love the fact that you got your guest to choose a song. You really were like um, democratizing the process here. Hey? Yes, and he chose a good one. He chose chose a good one. Ritka, but in closing, what do you now do with the research that that you've gone through and how you focused on, you know, the terminology that was being used in the New York Times? What will you do with that? Well, one stream is this media analysis to actually convince people that we are being, um, you know, we, we are getting a one-sided story about societal change. Yeah. But the other is basically that I want to uh, harmonize or, or I want to consolidate all the hundreds of indicator systems that we have in the world. So yeah. I will never, ever create my own index, yeah. but rather I will focus my career and attention on on harmonizing all these various um um, indicators that we have at the moment, because I feel there is so much overlap that we are not exploiting. Mm. And if we would actually work together towards a beyond GDP a measurement system, we would be far more effective also in the media. Yeah, absolutely. And it's critical for the media to understand these processes as well. It's 9.41. Our guest presenter is Rutger Hoekstra. He hails from the Netherlands. Uh, he is the founder of an organization called Metrics for the Future, focusing on how we measure the future. He's also the author of Replacing GDP by 2030, and as he mentioned, just uh, recently participating with the World Bank on a report called Changing Wealth of Nations, which talks to very different processes. This, though, is the choice of his second guest. Oh, I always love that song. Joni Mitchell takes us a while back, Big Yellow Taxi. And <laughs> our guest today is Rutger Hoekstra. Rutger, your guest, Dr. Paul Behrens. You've chosen him. He's chosen the music. Why have you chosen him? Yeah, um, Paul is one of the, my most inspiring colleagues at Leiden University. Um, he is so knowledgeable about so many things. Um, so it's always a, a great pleasure to uh, to talk to him, and I do think actually a quarter of an hour will be far too little to really <laughs> showcase his work. But 
And he's also a fabulous uh, writer, and I wanted to showcase his book, um, which is called The Best of Times, The Worst of Times, um, and which really made an impression on, uh, on me and a lot of others. It, it's a story about um, climate science and the future of society, but it's written in a really balanced way where Paul uh, describes um, uh, a pessimistic view and a hopeful view of the society uh, that we might live in uh, in the next decades to come. And I think that's such a, an interesting way and balanced way of viewing it that we really need um, currently. So I, I hope that's enough of, a, of an introduction to him. <laughs> uh, uh, Paul, how do you feel about the introduction? <laughs> well, it's very, very, very nice of you, Rico. Yeah, lovely to, lovely to be with you, Michelle and Rico. Yeah, that's super nice of you. <laughs> well, we are prisoners of hope, that's for sure. <laughs> Dr. Paul Behrens, you are the guest of uh, Rutka, who is our guest today. You have just come back from what I understand from COP26. Tell us uh, your, your feeling, your outcomes, your, your view of uh, that. Oh, there's so much to say about what happened and, and also how we look towards the future at these events. In a way, these events, these um, conferences, they're always going to be never quite enough because the science is quite clear that things have to change so very quickly that these conference of the parties, these co uh, gatherings, they're never really going to be quite the speed that you need them at. Um, I think this one particularly, there were some small signs of progress, but a lot of quite disappointing things. So to give you one example, for the first time, they were talking openly about fossil fuel subsidies and fossil fuels, uh, but on the flip side, there was no real acknowledgement that there's been a failure uh, by high income nations to give money to lower income nations to cope with the impacts mm. of climate change. And that's really sad to see because we need sort of global agreements and, 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 and global initiative on this. And people need to feel like they're all working together towards the goal. You know, um when when uh, Rutka was talking about your book, he was talking about you know the fact that you you've looked at you know pessimism, optimism, which obviously is that's I suppose one could call it futures planning or even scenario planning, the different scenarios. Where do you feel we are with regards to the different scenarios of the world as we move forward? So yeah, overall, I mean, in short, the climate impacts are on the whole, systemically worse than we thought they would be. The, to be very, very clear, the temperature estimates that the IPCC and other scientists have put together have been super accurate. But the actual impacts on society from that have been broadly uh, underestimated. So that's been going um, faster than we thought. On the flip side, um, many people didn't think that renewables would be any at all an option by now. Mm. They thought, oh, it's, you know, it's never gonna happen. Um, and now, New, uh, new renewables is cheaper than existing fossil fuels in many areas of the world. So the situation we now face is that we need to have this transition from one form, uh, from one energy generation to another energy generation. So there, there is there is hope, um, but it's it's going to be a very difficult time in the coming decades. So I'm going to put this question to both of you: Is that if we reflect on Rutger, what you've been speaking about about the concept of a post-GDP, and by post-GDP we mean that we look at GDP, but we also look at sustainability and the like. And if we look at sustainability and environment, Paul, as you've noted, how can companies and governments, and, and more importantly governments, because it is systemic, 
make a shift to follow the approach as standard practice. So what is the shift that you believe practically that uh, our governments could be doing, thinking about if they're looking at things like environment, sustainability, um, uh, social engagement, and also GDP? So, well, maybe, so I, I think one of the things that uh, can be looked at is ways to avoid sort of political deadlock, you know? Uh, <laughs> and so one of the things I like is um, uh, citizen assemblies where you get groups of people from across the country, from all different walks of life together, and you actually uh, talk to them. Uh, and you have scientists who tell them, this is the situation we find ourselves in. Um, this is what the scientists think might happen. Uh, this is the reasons why, you know, this is quite scary, but the these are the solutions that we have on the table that could have these impacts. And if you have a look at what actually happened in the UK Citizens Assembly, they took 108 people from across uh, the UK and asked them what they wanted to see, and they wanted to ban SUVs. They wanted to suggest reductions in meat. They wanted a frequent flyer levy where you increase the tax every time you take another flight. And, and this is way beyond where the politics is at. And these are these are just these are members of the public. They're not necessarily climate scientists or anything. Um, so partly, I think what you need to see is you need to have greater involvement from society because often they're actually ahead of where of where the politicians are at. And you can see that at COP. You know, I mean, people are very generally ahead of where the politicians are at. So if they're behind us. <laughs> Well, then, Michelle, can I, I yeah. also add to that? Yeah. The, the, I, I also did the, the New York Times analysis for climate change, for example. Yeah. And and what's really interesting is that you do see a huge uptick of that topic also in the newspaper. So I think it also echoes what Paul is saying, is that the societal conversation is perhaps moving much faster than than actual uh, governments and and sometimes uh, some companies as well. Yes. Um, so so there is some some sense of optimism. And one of the things Paul talks about in his book is um, uh, social thresholds that you don't need a majority sometimes of uh, of a society to subscribe, but you really need an active and vocal um, uh, group within society. And, and from that perspective, I was also interested to know from, from Paul whether you must be shifting from the, the pessimistic view sometimes to the hopeful view. Um, and, and from a social activist point of view, are you getting more hopeful or more pessimistic? <laughs> <laughs> As with everything, I have to say yes and. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it, it, it is very encouraging to see the change. And what Ruka was mentioning there was that there is research that suggests between, if you can get between 15 and about 40% of people adopting an attitude, and, you know, the, the middle of the estimate is 25%, you can, you can change everybody's uh, attitude. Uh, so you can really flip society. It'll go from one thing to another thing. So take vegetarianism or something like this. Um, you can suddenly see these rapid sh uh, shifts, smoking indoors and things like this. Um, and you do see quite a lot of increasing interest in the activism. It depends which countries you're talking about and what kind of activism. I think it's not just going out on the streets. It's things like uh, legal cases where you take countries and companies to court. Um, you know, it, 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 it's, it's across lots of different actions. Uh, it's people on uh, in businesses, all these sorts of different things. So, yeah, I see quite a lot of hope there. I, I love what you were saying a little bit earlier about um, sort of social thresholds, but also about citizen assemblies, because the implication is with a citizen assembly is that your government listens 
to the citizens. So, I mean, the whole way through the show, we've been talking about um, citizen activism, actually. And the idea that your government does listen to you. So if you have a citizen assembly and they go, we all want to plant cabbages on our sidewalks, which is what we were talking about earlier, but your, your police force is saying, no, you're not allowed to. And, yeah. But all the citizens are saying, damn, we want to plant cabbages on the sidewalk and onions yeah. and anything else. How, how do we argue for that more loudly in a way that your, your government says, OK, fine, we get it. We hear you. Well, I think, I think a lot of this is to do with the idea of power and where power lies in society. And that's very difficult to be quantitative about. It's very difficult to make a metric like a, in Rutgers in a, in, a, in, a, in a sort of beyond GDP way of power. But there, there is definitely um, the power there. So if you have a citizen's assembly, it raises the profile of the issue and they may not get, get listened to. You're absolutely right. In the UK, um, there was very little sort of attention uh, by the politicians paid to that. But it was interesting what society thought about it, um, you know, and how that engaged people and engaged 108 communities around the country as well, because they all went home and spoke to their friends who spoke to their friends. And um, and so it's a sort of salience issue. It's like at the point at which it's undeniable that politicians had to act. And yeah. I think you need to get to those tipping points. Uh, and so it's just that that sort of raw power thing and you see that you saw that a lot in in cop 26 obviously i i read an interesting term the other day called multivocalism, which i thought was interesting just the idea of the diversification of voices like whose whose voice and how many different voices you can use in mm. order to make shift rutka i mean obviously with the work that you're doing you are advising all the time how are you advising governments and and what are the some of the outcomes looking, for example, at what Paul is saying around sustainability and the like. What are the kinds of uh, journeys that you're advising them on? Yeah, the, the, I think governments and also companies, for example, they're very practical. Uh, so they want solutions to decision-making processes they, they have. So, for example, one of the things in, in uh, the domain of Beyond GDP, which has been very impactful, is the fact that New Zealand has adopted a, a well-being budget. So you can imagine that the government spends loads and loads of money, um, and you know quite often those were distributed according to economic um, uh, economic priorities. And um, um, the New Zealand government actually said, well, no, uh, the, the priority of this government is to enhance the well-being of our society, and so we're also actually going to distribute the money based on that uh, principle. And when I advise governments, for example, they will be really interested to know, well, why, uh, how would I do that? Um, if I do actually want to distribute to this, I need methods, I need measurements, I need um, decision-making trees, you know, which projects would I do, which yeah. would I not? So I do find actually that governments and uh, companies are very actually willing to listen to this story. And I, I guess everybody um, understands this from an intuitive perspective, but they also want practical solutions to yeah. the, the processes that they have within the companies or the government. They don't want just a, an ideological story about, uh, um, you know, this is all wrong and we're going in the wrong direction. They also want the tools to actually do something about it. So, so let's just quickly take that term well-being. What does well-being mean in terms of the work that you're doing? 
Well, well-being is actually just uh, um, uh, just the quality of your life, literally, um, and and uh, and there, there's a balance there, um, as I also alluded to in the UBI discussion. Yeah. There's a balance there, for example, between work uh, and uh, leisure, uh, uh, family life. There's your health. There's your education. Um, it, it's a, the full scala of things which make uh, our lives uh, a good life are actually included in the, the, the well-being terminology. And, of course, having a stable income or enough income to actually um, live that life is a, an important factor. But the actual, uh, the actual thing which you're, you should be focusing on is, is, um, is, is your life. And, and one of the clearest examples is just the, um, the amount of uh, days or hours worked. Hmm. You do actually see that, for example, in the richest um, uh, countries, there is this tendency to start working less and less. A lot of the people in my generation um, actually work four days a week, for example. And in a, in a sense, that's a choice for well-being, that people uh, basically get enough income from those four days and are actually choosing to take uh, an extra day uh, of weekend, uh, so to speak. So that's actually a well-being choice, which is actually detrimental to, to your pocketbook. Okay, we, we have to close off. I'm afraid, gents, our time is running out. We have three minutes, so two minutes, actually. So, Paul, I, I'm going to start with you. In closing, given what you've seen over the last year, given what you saw at COP26, given what you write about the best of times, the worst of times, futures from the frontiers of climate science, what would you suggest for a government moving forward? They need to, governments in general, are going to need to turn the economy towards economies of well-being, but also addressing sustainability. So the, sort of the, the productive capacity of countries around the world are going to have to shift more and more and more to low carbon infrastructure, to insulation, to renewables, of course, to uh, changing the way in which we farm and actually draw carbon down. And so these big aims, they're going to take things like removing of subsidies and shifting of subsidies. In a lot of cases, the money's there. It's just going towards environmental destruction rather than well-being. Um, and imagine if you could take some of those subsidies and actually encourage well-being uh, and still help the, pe the farmers, still help um, the ex-fossil fuel workers uh, in transitioning to this future, which is just going to be so much healthier, much less air pollution, water pollution, much less climate change, biodiversity loss, as Joni Mitchell was talking about. Uh, fewer parking lots, <laughs> all all the rest of it. We'll wonder why we didn't do it sooner. That's the that's that that's the main message. We'll wonder why we didn't do it sooner. We'll wonder why we didn't do it sooner. Rutka, close us off. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, that's a fabulous ending. I can't top that. That's no, like... it was a pleasure to be uh, to be on the show. Thanks uh... for the invitation. Yeah. And thanks Rutger. Paul for agreeing to wake up early. Yeah. <laughs> no, thank you, Rutger. And thank, thank you for such a nice overview of the book. Yeah. <laughs> Rutger Hoekstra, also Paul Behrens, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, great conversation. We'll wonder why we didn't do it sooner. That's it. It's 10 o'clock. It's time for the news. It's no longer good morning. It's now goodbye.